Good morning, everybody. I love all this conversation that's going on. It's awesome. We don't like each Awesome. Uh, yeah, right? Not even a little bit. Um, hey, welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Just as a reminder, we are recording this. It goes out on a podcast when I remember to pull it and actually post it. Um, but it is out there. If you're interested in the podcast, if you go to holytrend.org, um, up on the top there's a menu options. One of them says online, and there's a podcast menu there that will take you to it. And it's available pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, I think. We, we do it through Spotify, but they distribute it. So it's kind of everywhere. Um, if you haven't already signed in, the sign-in sheet is right there. Maybe we can send it around again, because I know a lot more people came since that went. Um, if you want the handout, it says a man called Martin or a man named Martin. Session two um, is the one that you want. There's a handful here that Mary has. So we're going to continue today this, uh, this brief study from Luther and Our Ministries of Martin Luther and his life and kind of as our launching point into looking at the Book of Concord. Um, any questions? We'll start the usual way. Any questions that you have for me about anything? That was your St. Louis one. That was terrific. Had a good time. Spent a week of intensive classes at St. Louis Seminary, and they don't call them intensives for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so great to me. So, yeah, I was in class from 8 to 4 every day and then had homework I had to work on at night, too. So came out having put together two big presentations, a bunch of notes, a data analysis. Then I had to write a paper about the data analysis. And I still have to do some bibliography work. So, But good. It was neat to go back. Because, you know, I went through the seminary in St. Louis. So it's kind of like coming home. And uh, we got to visit some friends. Donna came along and got to hang out with some friends of hers and eat at all of our favorite places and visit all the things. And it was fun. It was cool. And neat to go to chapel at Concordia Seminary. Because, my word, what a, what a facility. So it was great. Thank you for asking. What else? Any other questions about anything? you have any more coming up? Um, that's a once-a-year thing. Most everything else is done as distance learning. So my next class um, starts on the 30th with Dr. Okamoto. And if you know Dr. Okamoto, that's always a terrifying prospect because he's, he's very super intelligent, super cerebral, and, and like you got to really pay close attention to him. So. But he's a good one. All right. Other questions about anything? I agree, John. Um, just in terms of stuff going on, you know, next Saturday is um, card day. I mean, normally it would be card night, but um, come play dummy bridge with us. And the dummy refers to the players, just so not everyone knows. Like it's, called I, it's not, it's nothing like bridge. No. no. Um, but it's fine. You don't have to know the rules, and you probably couldn't remember them if you did because they change on every hand. Um, and they're ridiculous and fun. So. Yeah. Um, and everybody gets a prize, guaranteed. We'll have so much stuff, you can have whatever you want. Can't lose if you try. Can't lose if you try. Um, you know, bring bring an appetizer, bring a drink or something if you want to. We'll be here from 2 to 5. It's hosted by the journeymen, but it's for everybody. So come join us for that. Um, what's going on next week, Saturday, for the youth, just if you happen to own one of those. Um, the youth are getting together for bowling at Fast Lanes after the late service. There's a March for Life next Sunday uh, at 2 p.m., um, and that's all in the news and notes, so you can look for that. I think that's it, just in terms of stuff going on. Um, all right.
No other questions about anything? Um, I'll give you a quick update on the call process because you were asking about that last week. Um, we have received information on several more candidates. Some of them that we had asked for have kind of fallen out of the process for one reason or another. Uh, but we do have an interview on Tuesday. Um, and, and hopefully in the very near future, we will be um, getting word out about another um, voters assembly to extend the call. So that's, that process is moving along pretty quickly. Um, so just keep that in your prayers. Based on this week while I was in St. Louis, I did go visit with the placement director at Concordia Seminary. And from what we're seeing in terms of the number of candidates that they have this year, um, it's extremely low. And the chances that we would get somebody are pretty low. So we probably will not um, pursue a candidate from the seminary. I, Dr. Nielsen, who's the placement director, is just he's the most gregarious, happiest guy in the world. But when I met with him, he was just kind of slumped over at his desk. And he said, I've got, you know, for team ministry, I've got 16, maybe 18 guys. And I know I'm going to get 40 requests for them. So <laughs> I, we probably won't wind up doing that, at least not this year. Um, any other questions? All right, let's start with devotion then. Again, from the book By Faith Alone, um, a series of devotions written by Martin Luther, just one for every day of the year. Um, today's is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Dedicate your lives to Christ as Lord. Always be ready to defend your confidence in God when anyone asks you to explain it. However, make your defense with gentleness and respect. And the title of this is Respond with Gentleness. When you're challenged or asked about your faith, you shouldn't respond arrogantly. You shouldn't be defiant or forceful as if you were tearing trees out of the ground. Rather, you should respond with fear and humility as if you were standing before God and answering him. If you were summoned before kings and princes and had prepared yourself well in advance with scripture, you might think, just wait, I'll answer correctly. But the devil will grab the sword out of your hands and give you a shove. You'll be disgraced. You'll find out you put on your armor in vain. He can even take your best verses from your hands so that you can't use them, even though you have them memorized. God allows this to happen to subdue your arrogance and to make you humble. So if you don't want this to happen, you must stand in fear and not rely on your own power. Rely instead on what Christ promised. When they hand you over to the authorities, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. When the time comes, you will be given what to say. Indeed, you're not the ones who will be speaking. The spirit of your father will be speaking through you. So when you have to give an answer, you ought to arm yourself with scripture, but don't pound it home with a proud spirit. Otherwise, God will tear the verse from your mouth and from your memory, even if you were armed with all the verses beforehand. Caution is needed here. But if you're prepared, you can answer princes and leaders and even the devil himself. Just make sure that you aren't speaking insignificant human words, but the word of God. So kind of appropriate for today since the theme is sort of about our calling to go and tell, which is neat. Let's start with a prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for gathering us together here so that we can um, come together to learn more about Martin Luther and about this amazing man who you used to do an amazing thing in history. Um, we pray that uh, this would enlighten our understanding, but more importantly, that it would draw us closer to you. So be with us as we study and guide our discussion. 
um, that all of it might um, glorify you and point us to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to go ahead. We'll start. We'll watch the video. I don't remember exactly. How long is this one? About 15 minutes. Um, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. And I think I got the sound working the right way. Y'all hear okay? So Luther is now introduced to a monk's life, which is a very regimented thing in a lot of ways. There are worship services to attend, there are readings to hear, there's work to be done. Luther, of course, ramps that up. He not only wanted the strictest monastic discipline he could find, he disciplines himself, including self-flagellation. And then he's at this for two years, just as a friar of the Augustinian order there in Erfurt. You know, being an Augustinian monk, it was hard. Your day started at 1.45 a.m. with a wake-up call and then 2 a.m. for a prayer service. Then you'd get another 30 minutes sleep and then have another service at 4 a.m. and another at 6 a.m. All that was before breakfast. And you were expected then to stay busy all day with work, with prayer, readings, and more church services until 1.45 p.m. Then they let you take a nap for a couple of hours and then you were back at it. Uh, the day, it was relentless. Luther at this point was uh, very concerned, of course, about uh, his salvation. And despite the fact that he was in a monastery, he never felt the security he thought he would find as a monk. In the monastery, instead of it solving his problems, it got worse and it got worse and worse because the more he tried to do things right and by the book, the more he realized he was falling short. In late medieval Christianity, there was a real bookkeeping mentality in regard to sins. Uh, sins were viewed as discrete acts or things that you had forgotten to do. And so you could list them off. What had you done or what had you not done that you were supposed to do? And under the late medieval theology of penance, you had to name everything. And while most people didn't take that so seriously, Martin took it extremely seriously and strove to name every possible sin that he had committed. Well, you can imagine uh, the result of this. Uh, Luther would name off his sins in the confessional, he'd walk away and maybe remember a few more or maybe commit a few more and he'd have to go right back. Uh, this frustrated his confessors. Uh, one of his confessors told him at one point, uh, go away and do something really serious, you know, a really big sin, and then come back and talk to me. Uh, he wasn't used to people having this level of, of scruples about every single aspect of their lives. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Martin Luther. So, Luther is a good monk. He's serving as a monk, but he's not just an ordinary monk. He's got gifts and skills. And so he gets on the track to become a priest. And we need to remember, not, a lot of people assume that, you know, monks are all priests. Not at all. A monk is simply a, a man who's taken a vow of poverty and chastity, and he's living this way. But a priest is one who's trained to actually handle the sacrament and deliver the goods. Not every monk can do this. Luther was ordained in 1507. Uh, he had been selected for the priesthood for the study of theology, recognized as a bright young monk and told to study. And at the moment of ordination, he experienced great fear. Uh, how 
could he possibly transform the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ? That, of course, was late medieval Roman Catholic theology, that the priest had the power to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood. And so when he knew he was doing the sacrament, when you said the words, hocus corpus now, this is my body, you were holding the body of Christ. He was terrified to think that he, an ordinary human being, could be holding God in his hands. And he was, he was terror-stricken. It was, it was a very frightening moment for him. And he almost dropped the elements in, in his terror. Now, actually, that wasn't unusual. That happened to other young priests, too. But Martin remembered this. I've often wondered if it, if it played into his later rethinking of what was going on in the Lord's Supper. Because, of course, later on, when Luther thought about the Lord's Supper and God's gift to us in that, the focus was on what God is doing, not on what the priest is doing. Well, Luther survived his first Mass, and he, he was very successful at being a pious Augustinian monk. He didn't just go through the motions. He, he did his tasks earnestly, uh, especially mortification, which is self-torture, trying to prove to God that you really, truly are sorry for your sins. You know, he did things like he whipped himself, he walked over stone floors on his knees, he even laid out in the snow without covering himself. Stoppitz had thought that if he'd get busy with his doctoral studies, uh, that would divert his mind from his conscientious struggle with, with God's wrath. It didn't quite happen that way. In some ways for Luther, going on to advanced study of the scriptures at the doctoral level made things even worse because now he's finding the righteousness of God a very narrow thing. God is righteous. He demands righteousness of his creatures. And Luther knew he couldn't come up with that. He felt that, that God was a tyrant, that God was a cruel monster who was demanding what could not be given and, and, and taking delight in damning him to hell. For Luther, in his day, righteousness of God meant the expectation that God has that you have to live a certain way. That means living without sin. That means doing penance for any failures that you have. And so for, for Luther, when he would contemplate the righteousness of God, this was not a happy thought, but a horrible burden because the righteousness of God, well, that's perfection. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Romans 1, 17. Luther began his theological education shortly after his ordination. But in 1508, Johannes von Staupitz, who was the head of the Augustinian monastery, he summoned Luther to Wittenberg to fill in for a professor who was on leave. There, Luther lectured on Aristotle, and he also continued his own studies. Finally, in 1509, he earned his Bachelor of the Bible degree. After that, he then returned to Erfurt, and he lectured for two years. Within the um, Augustinian hermits of, of Germany, there was a, a dispute that arose, and the one party showed enough confidence in Luther to send him to Rome with a brother monk uh, to plead their case uh, before the uh, head of the order and, uh, if necessary, before the Pope himself. He made his trip to Rome in the fall of 1510. Uh, visiting Rome was a great honor. It's a pilgrimage. And it surely would have knocked a lot of time off of uh, Luther's time in purgatory, this going to Rome, venerating the saints, and visiting all the holy sites there. On his journey, Luther and another monk, they stayed at the monasteries along the way. 
But one thing they noticed, the closer they got to Rome, the better the food got. In fact, the monks were living large. Their much higher standard of living, the food was better. It was a lot different than the austere conditions Luther was used to back in Germany. Uh, and that already uh, began to make him wonder about uh, the, the level of devotion and piety in the church, since his was such a strict branch of the Augustinian order. And so he and a colleague then went over probably the Brenner Pass and came down the highway into Rome. And Luther says that the moment he saw holy Rome in the distance, he bowed down and kneeled in the roadway, so thrilled he was to see the city of God, as it were, on earth. But once he got into Rome and he was doing the various things that a religious pilgrim would do in Rome, he got less and less enchanted with the city of Rome. In fact, later on he said, boy, if, if there's a hell, Rome is built on it. He found a city full of venality and all kinds of corruption and hypocrisy. Uh, he, of course, did mass at all the great churches and Christendom there, and yet he was hurried along by other Italian priests who said, pasta, pasta, get on with it, get on with it, in all kinds of pagan magnificence. And he was so disappointed in this. Uh, Luther, who had been trembling at his first celebration of the Lord's Supper, when he was in Rome, he found uh, the priest saying, in the words of institution, bread thou art, and bread thou shalt remain, wine thou art, and wine thou shalt remain. Luther was deeply shocked by the casual mockery of the saints and the sacrament, everything that he held sacred. So the trip to Rome, it really didn't help him at all. And on his journey back to Erfurt then in 1511, Luther was more disillusioned and more concerned about his standing with God, more than ever. And so he tried harder than ever now, with countless hours of fasting and sleepless nights and in so many ways trying to work his way into God's favor, and it didn't seem to work. Luther would confess his sins and then find himself grumbling against God moments later. And so he carried this problem to his confessor, Johann von Staupitz, and he claimed that uh, he almost hated God because of the things that he was being put through as a believer. Staupitz, however, let Luther in on a little secret. And what a comforting secret it was for Luther because Staupitz said that he himself had the same kind of spiritual wranglings that Luther did. Staupitz told Luther that repentance begins with the love of God. And at the time, Luther thought that that was really quite an enlightening thought. He said, so what everybody else thinks is supposed to be the end of repentance is really the beginning. The beginning of repentance is that I love God, not for the sake of saving my own skin, but I love God for God's sake. Staupitz helped young Martin Luther enormously. Uh, he helped him to realize that his struggles with sin, his struggles with what kind of God he had, was it an angry God? Uh, but Staupitz didn't get Luther all the way to his Reformation breakthrough. Luther came to his Reformation breakthrough as a process, and not as a single moment. On October 19, 1512, Luther received his Doctor of Sacred Theology degree in Wittenberg. At the ceremony, he pledged his submission to the authority of the church and to teach the truth of the Bible and to reject false doctrine. He became a professor of biblical studies. 
Now, when you lecture in the Bible in the Middle Ages, you don't actually do exegesis to the text to figure out what's going on. You're basically looking at what other commentators have said. Peter Lombard is the big one. And you're figuring out what he said about this, and you're making some further comments. But for Luther, he's digging in more and more because now he's got more sources available. He now has this new edition of the, the Greek text, and he's starting to learn this and dig into this. And as he's studying this, he's beginning to wrestle more and more with what actually is going on in the Bible text over against what he's been taught or what he's been learning through the church. But Luther would make a discovery. The Latin Vulgate was the official Bible of the church for over a thousand years. It, it was a translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible into Latin by St. Jerome in 380 AD. Around Luther's time, there was a Dutch priest and a theologian named Erasmus, and he was able to organize a new testament, if you will, from the older Greek documents. And Luther was able to get his hands on one of these new, New Testaments. And as he was translating from the Greek, he discovered that the word repentance, metanoia, had been mistranslated by St. Jerome. So the Bible does certainly talk a lot about repentance and about metanoia, or a change of mind, or a turning, which is the, the Greek word for, for repentance. And so the Bible talks quite a bit about this, but the word penance doesn't appear in the Bible. Mm. The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, speaks of a, a basic change of attitude, moving us away from our sin in the direction of the gospel. When that was translated into Latin, it came out do penance. So doing the mechanics of confession to the priest and then carrying out the satisfactions for temporal punishments became the, the heart, really the only working definition of that term. And the sense of our change of attitude got lost in the shuffle. Everything changes for Luther when he realizes it's not about me climbing up to God, but it's about God coming to me. And so what happens really in repentance is the focus is not about me doing my satisfaction, me earning my forgiveness, but it's about me simply honestly confessing to God and then hearing from God, you're forgiven. It's so, so liberating for Luther. Now one word might not seem that important, but listen to the difference. In Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Vulgate says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Do penance, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that's a huge difference. And that means that the listing of all of your sins then, the making confession to a priest, and the doing penance for them, is completely not biblical. By the middle of the 15 teens, Luther is beginning to say things in class, teach things in class, based upon his own study of the scriptures that are different from what he had learned as a student. Although Luther had not yet fully grasped what he would eventually understand about the gospel, he had come to realize that righteousness uh, was not something that he himself would do, but that it was a gift that would be bestowed by God through faith. And this understanding uh, even though his theology was not yet fully developed, uh, would assist him and prepare him for the battles that he was about to fight. The Catholic Church many years later at the Council of Trent would double down on the doctrine of penance. In 1550 they declared, if anyone says that in the Catholic Church penance is not truly and properly a sacrament instituted by Christ the Lord for reconciling the faithful of God as often as they fall into sin after baptism, let him be anathema, that is, let him be damned. 
so how do you get an indulgence soul? Well, you make promises. You make promises that when you buy this indulgence, your grandma Schmidt, who you fear is suffering so much in, in purgatory, will now be freed from her suffering. And it was, you know, playing on the emotions of the people and playing on their sensitivity. And the people bought it. That's what was good. I do that. You don't do that. Thirties <laughs> early enough for yeah, me. That's plenty early. And was that for two years? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Well, you didn't have time to sin. <laughs> <laughs> It might have been the intention. I'm not sure it worked that way. <laughs> Actually, sleep deprived might not be the best scenario to be in, huh? <laughs> but I don't have a copy of the sheet. I'm supposed to be leading the discussion. We got a spare spot. So <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody else have one? So in the video, Dr. Sherb described Martin Luther's experience as a monk. He's now introduced to a monk's life. It's a very regimented thing, as we've been talking about. Luther, of course, ramps it up. He not only wanted the strictest monastic discipline he could find, but he disciplines himself, including self-flagellation, whipping himself. So where would you expect to find the most regimented way of life today? Military. I, that's what came to my mind. Yeah, the military. Maybe Islam. Okay. Yeah. Certain certain groups. Yeah. Dominary father. Ah. Some homes. Say it again. Buddhist monks. Yeah, yeah. They go through a lot. Sure. Scientology. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing's bizarre to me. They oh yeah. Much own Hollywood. Yeah, they it's why. And I just yeah. Mormonism too. Well, there's some yeah, possibly some stuff That's there. Hard to walk away from too. Think about a period of in your life when you felt most controlled and confined and disciplined. If you want to share. Be <laughs> 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 those high school day. years, wouldn't it? Okay, <laughs> uh, it was in the last years of my career. Really. Yeah. Um, I became confined because of the the way the scheduling was mm -hmm. done so that even if you asked oh, for a particular day that you yeah. wanted to have for family or church or whatnot, the schedule was to make sure you were working. Wow. So um wasn't a whole lot you could do about that. So I, I became very isolated towards the end. Plus I had a lot of responsibility with my mo uh, widow mother. Oh, okay. And that was very difficult, extremely difficult to balance when she became, went into dementia. Right. So, yeah, I got really isolated until, um, really until we moved. I, you know, I've read a lot of stories lately, and you've probably seen them about um, folks who work from home, remote work. Mm -hmm. And and the ways that employers kind of keep tabs on you and make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and it's it sounds a lot kind of like what you're describing. 
What are the challenges that you faced when you moved on to a more free and liberated stage in life? So maybe that's one for you too. Can I hear a story? Yeah. We spent about two years looking for a house. Okay. And we finally found this one. Mm-hmm. And we decided that we were both off that day, so we were going to do a doubting back just to sign the mortgage papers. Okay. So we came all the way up, signed the mortgage papers, beautiful sunny day. Go ahead and said, well, you didn't tell anybody we were coming up. So we're on our way back home, beautiful weather and everything. Nobody on the highway with us. All of a sudden, a car comes up and T-bones us right at a bridge. Whoa. Well, my old motorcycle co-rider stuff kicked in, so I'm telling Paul how to do because he knocked his glasses off oh, and no. he can't see. So <clears throat> apparently we get the car back down on the all four wheels, and uh, nobody was hurt. But I was really upset because now my car's totaled and we're out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So luckily, cell phone works, so I called the kids and told them where we were and what happened, shocked them. <coughs> I was really upset about it, but we weren't hurt because the state policeman came out and goes, Where are the injured? Are there any fatalities? <laughs> and he's looking around, we're like, Nope, we're all okay. Even the little fellow that hit So later on, Michelle told me, She said, Mom, it wasn't so much that, because you guys weren't hurt, and he wasn't hurt, and it was a young guy, like college age guy, and he said, uh, really, I want to tell you that you probably, God put you in that place to save his life. And I went, oh yeah? <laughs> he says, if you hadn't been in the way, if God hadn't put you in the way, he would have hit that bridge abutment and died. Mm. I went, that's a good thought. Cool. That was life changing. That is life changing. Yeah, perspective, right? What about any stories about when you were in a kind of controlled situation and you came out of it, and what the challenges you dealt with as you came out? I can think of an eight to twelve week course the government gives you. It's called basic training. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so is it hard then after that to kind of adjust to being yeah. able to kind of set your own schedule? Is, yeah, you yeah. will. Yeah, what I say. Yeah, and for that eight to twelve weeks, yeah, that's all. Of it. They tell right. you when to wake up. They tell you when to eat. Right. Go to bed. Right. And when, when to eat. Go, when yeah. to go to the bathroom. They tell you. Yeah. That. Yes, sir. Very interesting. Yeah. Good point. So. Dr. Um, Mary Jane Hemig said, in Luther's time, people didn't doubt that God was present. The question was, what is God's attitude toward us? Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming impression that people had was that God was angry. Mm -hmm. In today's culture, how do people demonstrate whether they believe God exists or not? Protests. Okay. How do people demonstrate? Okay, by the way they live? Protests, what else? Mm-hmm. Where are they on Sundays? Where are they on Sundays, yeah. What do you do with your time? Mm-hmm. You know what the fastest growing religion in America is right now? None. 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 No. These are moving away from churches right now. Yeah, but there is a religion that is faster growing than any other. It's called, it's called sports. Well, yes. It is the fastest growing religion in America. Because, I mean, if you think about it, there's a ritual to it. There, there are vestments, uniforms, 
Uh, there's, you know, there's a prescribed time when things happen. People are always there. They gather together. There's a, an affinity that people have for one right another. Right down the street, you just drive over here, right over there. Uh, there's our ball games are going right, right now, yeah. right now. Yeah. Right now, cars are full. Parking lot is full. Yep. Fans. Sports. The, the word fans is just short for fanatics. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Fanatics. So uh, what got me was that we were driving home one Sunday and I saw um, the high schoolers baseball games going on. Mm -hmm. On a Sunday. On a Sunday. Yeah. It's more common than anymore. I remember as a child that I had a real good friend that did not go to church. And I just couldn't imagine a family not going to church. Yeah. And I remember when I first moved into Springdale, I guess, people were mowing their yards during church time. <laughs> and I thought, I cannot believe that they're actually out there and people can see them. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's really it. naive, but that yeah. was a, a thought I had. Yeah. Time, well, time and, and money, those are the uh, two things that kind of tell um, you know, what, what your idols are. Um, what are the difficulties that does it raise when you try to share the message of salvation in Jesus Christ? You ever bump into problems trying to do that? Yeah, dismissive, right? I don't need to hear that. Come on. Well, some people are you and, open to you it. and your book of fairy tales, right? When I went to Guatemala, they were very open. Open to it, okay. They, cool. They were waiting for us to do it. Right. Yeah. People they, say they're spiritual, but they're not religious. Yeah. How many of you have already been to church? Okay. If you haven't, in the, in the um, epistle reading from 1 Corinthians, there's a thing where Paul talks about how people, uh, divisions within the church, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. As you listen to that, one of the things that I think is interesting is when you hear that list of things, what I'm saying is that you know some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. That last one is not a positive one. The last one is basically what you're saying. It's, I don't need to deal with this church stuff. I'm following Jesus. That's essentially what's being said there. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's certainly, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. That's a, that's a catchphrase anymore. But rather than being Lutheran, I say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, yeah, yeah. As opposed to being in our little camps. Yeah, because yeah. if you say Lutheran, they have an opinion on that. I grew up in Georgia. I would say I'm Lutheran and they would go, is that like Christian or what? <laughs> Not a lot of Lutherans in Georgia. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can be successful without just opening up all of a sudden. Yeah, it's almost like an attack on somebody. Oh yeah, yeah. I think you first have to walk the walk yeah. to talk the talk. Yeah. And you have to build a relationship first. Yeah. I, I then as right. you get comfortable, you can start not only. Saying, but showing. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right that witnessing happens most effectively in the context of a relationship. That somebody who knows you, they know that you care about them, they understand that, that you know who they are. Um, you know, when was the last time somebody came up to you at the gas station and wanted to know if, if you knew Jesus Christ? I mean, you just sort of wrote them off as a nutcase, didn't you? Um, because it's like, you don't even know me. I mean, <laughs> if I weren't dressed like this... <laughs> Yeah, I do. I'm a pastor. Don't worry about it. Um, so that's, that's, that's not essentially. Well, that's not always true. That's sadly. <laughs> I just want to thank John for sharing uh, this video with us. Yeah. A man named Martin. Yeah. I've been to uh, 
to work in 22 states, including Hawaii. Yeah. And um, everywhere I go, I look for a Lutheran church. And I, I take Bible studies and all that. But in that short video, I learned more about Luther than... Mm-hmm. Cool. Since 1986, awesome. I've been to uh, awesome. Lutheran church. And I, I learned more about Luther and what he's done, yeah. including writing, uh, translating a, yeah. a, a, the first Bible yeah. from Latin to German yep. and coming up with their first uh, hymnal. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. It, that's cool. I love it. Thank you. John, well done, sir. <laughs> All right. So. There's a bunch of Bible passages that remind us that God is always present, watching over us. Genesis 28, 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. From a law point of view, and remember we got this distinction between law and and gospel, right? Law always condemns us. Law always shows us our sins. Gospel shows us our Savior, points us to Jesus. From a law point of view, what are the times you wish God wasn't looking? <laughs> In the midst of sin, right? Yeah. yeah, when you're doing something you know you shouldn't be, or you're not doing something that you ought to, right? Yeah. Don't remind me that he's always present. Just yeah. remember, sin is, temptation is not a sin. Yeah, well, that's right. It's crouching at the door. Jesus was tempted. Yeah, Jesus was. You're right. So from a gospel point of view, now flip it on its head, from a gospel point of view, what are the times that you're glad that he is always there? Same answer. What's that? Same answer. Same answer. Whoa, yeah. That's deep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think of, you know, your wreck. I mean, thank God he was there and... You know, yeah. protection for you. Always thankful <clears throat> every day. Yeah. And it, it brings to mind over time. Yeah. To, to just in the morning, just say thank you, God. And, yeah. yeah, and there's actually That's there's actually a comfort and a peace in knowing that. Right. Well, even even when you go to the bathroom, thank God, because if you didn't, if you couldn't, you'd be in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> And now I've got to edit the podcast. You might be right. So, so how's your perception of God? And remember, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here is is kind of Luther's perception of God, right? That drives things. How is your perception of God affected by the good events in your life, but also how is it affected by the bad ones? Lynn. The good advances, thank you, God. The bad yeah. advances, why God? Why God? Yeah. Yeah. To which right. we often don't have an answer. Right. Sad. It's almost like it's an inherent thing in us that. When something bad happens, the first thing is, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What is God punishing me for? First thing that, that comes right. from the bad. Right. That's the devil. And when something good happens, 
the first thing that pops up is, well, I'm doing it right. <laughs> God loves me. You know what? You could build a whole empire of prosperity gospel on that approach. <laughs> and really, truly, that's what you've heard of the prosperity gospel. And basically, that's what it teaches. If you're in a right relationship with God, this is heresy, by the way. If you're in a right relationship with God, then good things are going to happen to you. And if you're not doing it right, bad things are going to happen. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you got the nice new car, I was living right. When you had the wreck, you were screwing up. Emphasis on you. That's exactly right. It makes it about me and not about Jesus. Um, but you see with Luther, you can, you can kind of understand how his perception of God is being colored a little bit by his experiences. And so he, you know, when things go badly, he sees God as a tyrant who's coming after him, who's got, you know, has got it in for him. Um, there's a great quote. Some of y'all probably know Chad Bird, um, who was, he used to be a professor at Fort Wayne, and there's a whole story there. But Chad had posted a thing the other day, and I don't know if it's his or if he stole it from someone else, but it's, you know, we always need to be reminded that there's not, like, there's not this angry God hiding behind Jesus who's just looking to condemn you. That that's not who God is. God loves you. God cares about you. That's why Jesus came. But our, I think our kind of human and our sinful inclination is to look at God and think, oh, you know, he's out to get me. He's created this whole system of law and everything because he's looking for me to trip up so that he can kind of smite me or whatever it is. And, and I, I think our human sinful condition wants to take us in that direction. And, and what I think you see in the evolution of Martin Luther is that he comes to this realization that we have a loving God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. You know, that, that his intention is never to condemn anyone. His desire is, is that all would be saved. And so he sent his son, Jesus, for that end. Um, and so I think the challenge here is that I, we don't let our perception of God be affected by the things that happen in our lives. We let our perception of God be colored and, and, and fleshed out by what God has revealed to us about himself in his word. Um, and, then, and then it's not, you know, kind of subject to the whims of how the day went or something like that. Well, when we, um, when we sat together, <coughs> we're asking him to deliver us from a hard task. Yeah. And then he's going to deliver us from that test. Yeah. So it's almost like Jesus knew we were going to go through testing. Sure. But God's going to walk with us. Exactly. That test. Yeah. Yeah. And and Chad Bird, he's at that fifteen seventeen he is. He's yes. got really thought. Terrific stuff. Yeah. He 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 specializes really in, in Old Testament studies. He's a Hebrew scholar and does a terrific job of kind of taking Old Testament stuff and helping you see how it fits into the gospel and to the overall arc of, of you know the narrative of scripture. Well there's um, so much in the Old Testament that um is all when the people are doing bad, then God does mm -hmm. yeah. smite them. Oh, yeah. He Absolutely. He sends um, crop failures and locusts. And, and then when they turn around and they come to him, well, then the land heals and the people yeah. are prosperous and they're not starving anymore. And when they're going away again, then bad yeah. things happen to them. It's this constant ebb and flow. Yeah. So I think that without taking so much of the New Testament into context is where a lot of the if things aren't going right I'm doing something bad right 
things will get better if I do right. Right. That's and the love and, part, they don't, when you, when you study the Old Testament, there's a tendency <coughs> to take out the part where God is always chasing after them because he loves them. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's just harder in the Old Testament with the Jesus lens. Yes. If you haven't grown up in the church or been exposed to that a lot. Yes. Yeah. And I right. think that's why a lot of people go away from studying the Bible and do the feel good ministry because the Old Testament is hard. Now, to John's point, though. The Old Testament is clarified a whole lot if you do read it through the Jesus yes. lens, right? If you come at it with an understanding of who Christ is. And, and I mean, that's not novel. That's not new. Because Jesus himself, you know, when the Pharisees are coming after him, he's like, come on, you guys. You, you guys search the scripture because you think that in them you have life. And it is they that testify to me. <laughs> Jesus is like, the Old Testament is all about me. <laughs> but people don't but, do that now yeah. because that requires work. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, and and you know there is. I think there's this this viewpoint that like the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament angry God and there's a New Testament loving God, and and like you say, it takes some study to realize that no, that loving God is all over the Old Testament too, um, and, and and to know you know we like to pull out those stories about that, but in the end, it's about where who do you trust? Where you know where do you put your trust? Who do you look to? Who is your God, the one that you look to for all good and for all provision? And when you have that wrong, when you look to the wrong God, whether that's money or, or prestige or position or whatever idol you've decided to pursue, things don't go so well. You know, God's way is actually a, the better way. Um, but yeah, it's it, it takes some study. You gotta you gotta put it to in. Deliver on each time. Always. It just mm. delivers. Yeah. Kind of weird how that happens. <laughs> we are related to God as He is our Father, as Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Our, yeah, yeah, our Father. Father. Yeah. So since we are related, we will inherit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we are we are not slaves but sons. Yeah. And daughters. Yeah. yeah. Good point. All right. Um during the dark hours on the cross, Jesus clung in faith to his father's love, in spite of the fact that he was being forsaken by God at the time. So when we go through tough circumstances, it may seem like God is angry, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, God promises that his love is steadfast and sure. And that, by the way, is in the Old Testament too. Um, there's a great term. Um, one of my professors loved to drill this into it. But there's a, there's a, a word in Hebrew, nikam, um, and and God would nikam in the nifal, which is just a Hebrew phrase. But but it's it that and kesed, which is God's covenant love, His love for us. Kesed is all over the the Old Testament too, and it's a reminder that God cares for us, that He loves us, and that there's a promise attached to that. That there's a covenant where God has said, "Hey, I, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to carry you through this." And it goes all the way back to, you know, there's several of them. There's the Noah with Noah, and he does it with Abraham too. But all of them, it's about what God does, not about what we do. Um, but it's a covenant too. It's a covenant. It's a, it's a we do this, God does this. <laughs> the Abrahamic one is probably the best example that is not that. 
It looks like that, right? He says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and you're going to do this stuff. And, and he makes this promise with Abraham. But then, so in those days, the way the covenant was, was ratified, if you want to call it that, was that you would, you would take an animal and slice it in pieces, right? And you walk together through that. And basically the implication is, hey, if I don't keep up my side of the bargain, then that's what you get to do to me. Okay. That's, that's the point of all of that. And, and so how does that covenant get ratified? God puts Abraham to sleep and then God himself walks through those together. So basically what he's saying is this is all on me. I'm the one who's going to make it happen and I'm going to carry all the, the, you know, all the requirement for it. God makes that promise that he's going to make it happen, which is just astonishing. I mean, it's just mind blowing that he does that, that he ratifies the covenant in a way that makes it clear that he's the only one who has an obligation to get it done. That's really cool. Um, Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's always there, and he always carries us to a good place. Roman Catholic Church, now this business of the terror at the altar is, I think, really interesting. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that in Holy Communion, the bread and the wine actually turn into the real flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. It's called transubstantiation. Dr. Bierman talked about the first time that Luther consecrated the elements in Holy Communion. When you said the words of institution, you were holding the body of Christ, and he was terrified to think that he, an ordinary human being, could be holding God in his hands. He was terror-stricken. It was a very frightening moment for him, and he almost dropped the elements in his terror. In time, passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 16 convinced Luther that Jesus' body and blood are truly present in the bread and the wine, but the bread and the wine remain. Um, Lutherans, there's a footnote here that's worthwhile. Lutherans came to use the phrase in, with, and under to describe the, how the body and blood of Christ are joined to the bread and wine in Holy Communion against the Reformed idea that the bread and the wine only represent the body and blood of Christ. Lutherans confess that we receive the body and blood in and with the bread and wine against the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and wine transforms into the body and blood. So bread and wine are no longer present. Lutherans say the body and blood of Jesus are with and under the bread and the wine. So it's a both and. How is that written in the Latin and the Greek <coughs> when Jesus says this is? So, so in Greek, because that, that's how the words of institution come to us in Greek. Um, the word that he uses is Amy, which which literally means is. And, and there's no nuance. There's no, oh, it means represents or is symbolic of or anything like that. Amy can only mean is. Is. Yeah. Now, how's that work? Like, I mean, that's the analytical, you know, the, the logical mind is like, well, how? And the answer is, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's one of those mysteries that God doesn't solve for us. He just says, when Jesus says, this is my body, there's no other way to interpret it other than this is. Yes. Okay. Right? So 
basically we just take God at his word and say, all right, he said it is. I don't know how, but... And, and you know, probably the best way to understand it, if understand is the right word, is to look at Christ himself, who is 100% God, and at the same time, 100% man. Right? The, the divinity, not... And boy, we can read the Athanasian Creed if you want to get into the, all the nuances of that. But we're not talking about like there's, there's a God part of him and there's a human part of him and those two get smooshed together somehow. We're saying, no, he's, he's 100% God. He's 100% man. However that works, I mean, that's sort of a faith thing. Well, in, in the same way we say that in Holy Communion, the bread and the wine are also the body and blood of Christ. 100% bread and wine, 100% body and blood. How? Don't know. God, that's a faith thing, and we leave that as one of those mysteries that, that God it's gives us. Yeah, it's a spiritual thing. Spiritual. Yeah, but now, let me. I wanted, the only thing I would say about that, and push back on it, because some people would say, yeah, the body and blood of Christ is present in a spiritual way. And, and, and I would push back on that and say, no, 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 it's present in a physical way, it but it's a physical way that we don't understand and can't explain. I don't have the, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have the broadness of God's mind to understand how. Um, but certainly spiritually present, but also physically present, right? Yeah. I always wondered, in a Catholic church, they received one of the bread and wine. In the Lutheran church, we received both. Yeah, and that was a that was a that was a Luther thing. It was a Martin Luther thing, who basically said that it was not up to the priests to withhold one of the elements from the people. Um, in the Catholic Church, generally, and I don't know if that's the same today or not, and somebody can correct me, but at least certainly in Luther's day, the people would receive the host, the bread, but not the wine. Um, I think today they do, yeah. I, I think, but that was something Luther pushed back on in his time. That would have been uh, probably 1530s or so, when Luther was, you know, kind of coming to his prominence. Yeah. Um, he, he, there's some there's some stuff that he wrote about that basically that, that says this is this is bad practice, guys. That that it is not up to us to withhold this gift that God has given to us from the people. Some churches play with that. And grape juice or these things. Uh, and uh, Yeah, so why do we use wine? I mean, could we do it with saltines and Pepsi? <laughs> Pepsi. The, well, the answer is no. <laughs> right? And, and why? So why? I mean, why, why couldn't we do that? Jesus you know, use, use, I don't know, Capri Sun and a Ritz cracker. Well, it probably had to do with that's the it. Yeah. I, you know what? Because Jesus said bread, wine. Yeah. So, okay, that's what we're going to go with. Now, does it? Must it be red? Can it be white wine? <laughs> he said bread, and he said wine. I, red, white. Who cares? That's not the point. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. That's pretty neat. Yeah, tell sure. Somebody gave some white wine. Okay. We should at least talk about this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, when I was, and we'll have to wrap up in a second here, but when I was at the seminary, there was a, there was a period of time where the way communion works at the chapel, they do it once a week, um, 
have chapel every day, but once a week is, is Holy Communion. And usually there's a church within the LCMS that sponsors it, and they provide the wine and the bread and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Missouri District, I think, or some circuit within the Missouri District, took that on one year. And, and their idea was that they wanted to provide Missouri wines for communion. And so there were several different ones that were, Missouri, but Missouri wine's not great. But, but, but among those were several white varieties and, and they were very meticulous to talk about what was going on and why and all that kind of stuff. In my home congregation before I became a pastor, um, somebody was kicking up a fuss about about that it had to be red wine. And and I remember our pastor saying, well, that's it, we're going to white. Because that doesn't matter, and the only way to prove it is to... <laughs> you, know, you can't prove it. Because if you're going to be that way about it, we're going to use something. Yeah. So if we use processed crackers yeah. instead of bread... Yeah. What would be the difference between using a saltine or a Ritz if you didn't have anything else? Yeah, so and, and probably saltine or Ritz isn't a, isn't a great example of that, but a, you know, bread. You know, I mean, can you use an Oreo and Pepsi? Probably a bad idea. Well, you know, but it's, um, it's the idea of like the processed cracker is no different than a Ritz cracker in the yeah. idea of how it's created. Yeah, so, you can go the old yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 blood. Yeah, the blood. What was the blood? Yeah. What was yeah? You know, a, a lot of it takes you back to the Passover, and you talk about the unleavened bread. So, so generally, kind of the boundaries that are placed around it is that it should be unleavened, no yeast in it. Um, it, it tends to be kind of a thick. Yeah. If they spread Pepsi around the door sills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it no, that was blood. That was actual blood. All right, that, this is probably a good set place to stop. There's a lot more in here. Um, I will say that Luther's terror at, at consecrating the elements the first time, I can totally identify with that. Um, Dr. Um, Bierman, I don't know if you remember him, who was sitting up in the balcony over yeah. a just gorgeous church. That's the church where I did my vicarage. Um, so that's a neat place for me to see. But that's a big church. We worshiped a 1100 on a weekend and the first time I was called on to consecrate the elements it was a terrifying experience and it was not so much the realization that I was holding God in my hand although that was terrifying enough but it was the the terror of this is really important and I don't want to screw this up you know that that I, I'm I realize that I'm bringing a gift from God and the, just the, the humbling nature of that is pretty powerful. And that continues to this day. So, All right, I'll let you, you can read the rest of this stuff. We'll pick up session three next week. Um, I think we've talked about all the stuff going on, so let's just close with a prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for all the blessings that you give to us. Thank you for the ways that you pour out your blessings on us, the word and the sacraments. Um, we thank you for this series on Martin Luther and the insights that it gives us into why we believe what we believe um, and how he draws us back into your scripture and back into your word to have a better understanding of it. Um, guide and lead us as we go forth from here that everything we do this week might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.